Hello and welcome to another episode of Daf Shui, Weekly Daf. Give me 40 minutes or so and I'll give you a Daf or so. I'm Aryeh Cohen and I'll be with you for the next 40 minutes or so. Thanks for coming. Yeah, we're just before Thanksgiving. It's kind of an odd year to be giving thanks. I mean, there's lots of gratitude for still being alive for those of us who are, still being well and healthy for those of us who are. We don't get together. Uh, we might get a chance to contemplate or reflect or think about what it is that we're actually giving thanks for. On the one hand, it's always good to give thanks. On the other hand, the holiday was built on a mythology which papered over genocide. So it's, of course, as always, with this great country of ours, a mixed bag where the rot hides underneath the paper mache decorations. But stay home or just stay with the people you're, you've already been with. Don't have large gatherings. That's what they say. Um, and I think it's good. I think that seems to be what the science says. Let's just wait it out. Seems to be the vaccines are coming. And then we can once again be grateful for that. Be grateful for family and friends. <sighs> Remember those who are no longer with us. Okay. So we are going to start. We are on... Uh, we're in Baba Batra, Batim, third parak of Baba Batra, 47b, about five lines uh, from the bottom. We're actually going back a little to get something of a running start. It is, of course, five lines from the bottom in the page, on the page that was typeset by the widow and the brothers Ram, lo, these 150 years ago in Vilna. Before we start, though, I want to give a short overview of the sugya. The reason for this is that I don't want the issues of the sugya to get lost in the details. So, truth be told, I'm not going to give an overview of the sugya itself, but rather the issues of the sugya. The issues are really boiled down to one issue, the question of the ability to contract or what constitutes a fair contract, which some fair-minded people might call two issues, but okay. This is summed up provocatively in Rav Huna's statement, If one hangs another up on, let's, on a tree, let's say, or on a coat rack, to borrow an image from slapstick, and then forces that person to sell him something, a watch, a cat, a house, the sale is good. The sale goes through, and if challenged afterwards, and there's a slight ambiguity about whether afterward refers to after money changed hands, or only after the property changed hands, if challenged, the sale stands. The important thing to remember is that this is not a case of theft in the way that we normally think of it, those of us who aren't lawyers. This is a case where Allison wanted to buy Bob's bingo table, and Bob refused to sell even for the totally fair price that Allison offered. So Allison did the next best thing. She threatened Bob, and thereby forced him to sell her the bingo table. She then paid Bob for the table, which did not include delivery. She schlepped the table home, and that is all. This, according to Ravuna, is considered a good sale, an effective sale, a fine sale. So, what is going on here? How could it be that the transfer of ownership can be effected under duress? Most capitalist systems have a principle of free contract as a solid basis of many types of activity in the, in the market, and duress or coercion invalidate free contract. Now, of course, the Gemara is not living in a completely capitalist system, it's an agrarian system, it's a mixed economy, but still, 
lots of things are similar in terms of contracting and the market. Almost immediately, the Gemara tries to walk this back a bit, initially claiming that all sales are made under some type of dress, then attempting to distinguish between unsa dinafshe, or internal dress of the kind, quote, I really need to sell this in order to buy that, unquote, and external dress or coercion of the kind, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Though this seems to be a strong distinction, legal theorists and philosophers like Richard Nozick raise doubts over whether one can really distinguish between cases of threat and offer. If one forces a sale on another person by threatening to help their competition if they don't agree to the sale, and at the same time the terms of the sale are market terms that is a fair price for the value, and the seller then makes a choice not to have to fight a much stronger competitor, but rather choose to sell at a fair market price, despite enjoying being in business, is this coercion, or is the seller making a rational choice? The deeper question for a market economy is, are there actually free actors in the market, or is it all power all the way down? The deeper question for the philosophers is, is there free will? But luckily, I am not a philosopher. For the sugya, the question is wider, as there are implications for ritual law too. The easier case, perhaps morally, is sacrifice. If someone is forced to sacrifice in the temple, is that considered a true sacrifice? However, the situation is stickier if someone is forced to divorce his wife. We know that the law in the Mishnah is that a man cannot be forced to divorce. However, that same Mishnah says a man can be beaten until he says, I want to, Rotsani. Is that not coercion? When does the coercion stop? What about the case of marriage, in which, according to the halacha, a woman cannot be betrothed against her will? Can a woman be coerced to agree to a betrothal? Is that no longer coercion if, at the end of the process, if there's a, an agreement? Can a man be coerced to betroth, betroth a woman? Is that betrothal considered an effective betrothal legally? Another larger question that looms over these is, to what extent can we formulate law based on what someone's intention is? Can we ever know someone's intention? There's a whole branch of study which is more or less premised on the idea that we don't necessarily know our own intentions. Does this ever stop, or is it just elephants all the way down? So now to the sugya. I just want to kind of, uh, you know, make clear that I'm not going to answer any of the larger questions. The sugya is going to answer some of the smaller questions, but the larger questions will be with us for the next few, for the next few pages, and then for the next few weeks or months or whatever. Okay, back to the sugya. Amar Avhuna, 47b, five lines from the bottom. Amar Avhuna. So Rav Huna says, if Ruvain takes Shimon and ties him up to a tree, hangs him on a doorpost, and forces him to sell, forces Shimon to sell Ruvain, whatever it is that Ruvain wants to buy, that is considered a fine sale. My time, oh why? What's the reason for this? Call the Mazbin Inish, Ila Da'anis, La Havi Mazbin. So the Gemara here has an interesting, uh, an interesting perspective on the market. A person, anything that a person sells, if the person had not been under duress, they would not have sold it. And even so, the sale is considered a sale. Meaning that the Gemara can't imagine a situation in which a person would want to part with their goods for money without having to do it. This is obviously not a market economy in our sense of the term, where basically uh, you just manufacture things to sell them, and then you buy other things to replace the things you just bought and on ad infinitum. 
But the Gemara then asks, okay, okay, let's, let's say we stipulate that everybody sells only under duress. But that could, that's a different kind of duress. Can't we say that's a different kind of duress than an external duress? Right, then an external coercion, then somebody else coming to you and putting a knife to your throat. Ella, Kiditanya, rather, this is according to the Brita, Yakriv Oto, Melamed Shikofin Oto. So it says in, in, in the Pasuk, Yakriv Oto, Im Ola Korbanom and Abakar Zachar Tamim Yakrivano, El Petach Oel Moed Yakriv Oto, Liritsono, Lifne Adonai. So the Pasuk in Vayikra, says if his sacrifice is an Ola sacrifice, a, a, uh, a, a sacrifice that is totally burnt up. So from either, uh, from he takes it from the male cattle, a pure male cattle that hasn't been worked, and bring it to the, the doorway of the Ol Moed. He will bring it close to his will, according to his will, before God. So apparently the Yakrivoto, there are Yakriveno and a Yakrivoto, it's a redundant Yakrivoto. So what is Yakrivoto? Malamechikofinoto, which is interesting because right after that it says Lirsano, according to his wills. Ah, so that is used, Haketzad. Um Yochobal Korhoto Milomar Lirtsano. Could it be against his will? The Pasuk says Lirtsano. Haketzad, what does this mean? Kofinoto Adshiomar Rotsani. You coerce him or you beat him up until he says, Okay, I want to. So now the Mashbam explains us that at some point there is an actual change of mind, right? When you're being, when a person is being forced to do something, at some point, when the person says yes, they actually change their mind, and there is a moment in which they want to do it. So maybe that's different there because that's a case where if you bring the sacrifice to the altar, then you get atonement. So therefore, there is some motivation to bring the sacrifice, even if initially you didn't want to. Well, let me say, but let's look at the end of that Mishnah. And so too, do you say with divorce of women, you force the husband until he says, I want to, until he says, Rotsani. So there you seem to have a case, what's the alternative, what kind of ulterior motive would he have if he doesn't want to divorce his wife? And they beat him up, and then all of a sudden he says, I want to divorce him. So that seems to be a case where Talyuv is oven, Zvini Zvini. Vidilma Shanihatan the mitzvah Maybe that's different there because it is a commandment to listen to the words of the sages. So if it's a commandment to listen, so he wants to listen to the words of the sages. So therefore, uh, that's not a, a proof because there is an ulterior motive. Because the guy, you know, he doesn't want to divorce his wife. He's sexist. He wants her to suffer. But he doesn't want to be known as somebody who doesn't listen to the words of the sages. Right? Because, you know, somebody doesn't listen to the words of the sages, he'll be bitten by a snake or some bad will happen to him. So... Therefore, he will listen to the words of the sages. So that, that is his ulterior motive. So therefore, this doesn't prove Rav Huna's statement. Now, here's where it comes to the interesting internal reflection that they say that Rav Huna is based not on a previous source, but rather on a theory. And the theory is that by way of the coercion, the person actually 
completes and finishes and completes in his mind or comes to him in his mind and he has a complete intention at some point, right? So, agav unse gamarimakna, which is kind of an odd phrase, right? By way of the coercion, he decides or she decides in the case of, of selling, she decides that actually she wants to sell, so therefore the sale is actually good. Motive Rabbi Yehuda Yehuda questions this. Get kasher pasul. A divorce that is forced, a forced divorce, which is forced by a Jew, is kasher. But if it's forced by a non-Jew, it is pasul. Okay, this is just to remind us. This is another case where, of course, all the printed editions have akum. The printed editions have akum. All the manuscripts have guim. Now, the printed editions have an extra line here. Now, here, here, this is interesting about manuscripts. Printed editions have an extra line here. But goyim chovtim oto v'omrim lo And when it is done, the, the coercion is done by a non-Jew. So the non-Jew beats him and says to him, do what the Jew tells you to do. So the problem is that that line doesn't exist in any of the manuscripts. But another problem is that that line is actually the next line in the Mishnah, in the Mishnah in Gittin, in the ninth chapter of Gittin. And, in truth, the next line, Va'amai, is not asking about that line, so it doesn't make a difference whether the line is there or not. Most of the Rishonim, it seems, don't have that line, but the Tosvot seems to have that line. Um, and even the Rishonim that don't have that line, then later on, point to the Mishnah in which that line exists. So it's kind of a hard call whether or not to have that line or just, just to see the line is is implied here. So Motes Rabbi Yehuda's question is get to Musa with a, a forced get. A get that is forced by a Jew is kasher and by a non-Jew is pasul. Why? What's the point? Therefore, in that case also, you should say that by way of the coercion, he decided to really divorce. So even, in other words, even if a non-Jew coerces a Jew to give a get, at some point he decided to give the get, even though it's not mitzvah chachamim, because he's not a chacham, but he was doing it on the way, on the, by, at the behest of the, of the Beitin, or, so why not say that? Why not say that at some point, Gamar Magarish, that just like Rav Svar in general, that he decided to divorce her. Ha itmar Allah, but actually it says about we say about this. Amarav Mesharsha Dvartura Afilbagoim Kasher. The Mesharsha says that actually with non-Jews, the get is kosher. So it seems that you can force it, even with non-Jews. And what's the reason that you say that if a guy forces the husband to give a get, the get is invalid? Kidei Shilo Tehei so that every woman, each and every woman, should not go and literally mean to hang herself on a non-Jew. Rashbam is very explicit that it means uh, that it means that she should not go around sleeping with some non-Jew in order that the non-Jew would then force her husband to give her a divorce because we say that a, a divorce forced by a non-Jew is kosher. Now, what's interesting is that two things. So first of all, Ramasharsha says that it's actually kosher, right? That this kind of, that if a non-Jew forces 
a Jew to give a get, the get is kosher. But the second thing is, is that in Gittin, in that sugi in Gittin, the, the Gemara says, Rameshasha is badutahu, right? Is wrong. It's a lie. It's not true, what Rameshasha says. And they they go back on it. But here, um, and that's not something that you, you run across every day, that the Gemara says about a, a, a statement that badutahu. Okay. But we don't seem to have that that tradition of badutahu. We don't seem to have. And here, uh, we, we move forward and continue with the notion that it seems like Agav Unsa Gamar Magarish, right? And um, that's what Rabbi Masharsha says, because even with the case of a guy, case of a non-Jew, the get is good, um, but we just don't want him to do it. This week's podcast is brought to you by Plugta, the original social conflict consultancy. Do you ever wonder why Hillel always won and Shammai went home empty-handed? Why Abaya always got the participation trophy while Rubba's opinion became law for generations? Well, we can tell you. Plugta will teach you how to lean into conflict, how to lean in so far that Uncle Max will cry uncle. They can get a free trial just in time for Tishabov. As Ram Dass wisely said, if you think you are enlightened, go home for the holidays. Well, this time, when you go home for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, make sure that you go armed with the social knowledge that all your favorite sages had. This time, when your cousin Morty starts in again with his favorite troglodyte theory about politics, you will be prepared with a Raminu, an Ibcha Mistabra, an Adarava, and he will be sitting in silence until next year. Right now, exclusively for listeners of this podcast, you go to www.plukta.com slash You can take a free conflict-style assessment test, and we will set you up with a very reasonably priced course that will make you the bar plukta to fear in no time. Made to Rav Hamnuna. So Rav Hamnuna comes and asks a question from a different case from going back to the case of buying and selling. But in a specific situation, we had this last week. If one took from a sikrikon, now a sikrikon here, in general, uh, a sikrikon is, uh, this case appears only in the the Mishnah, only in Gittin, in the fifth parak. But here, it's just, it seems to be referring more to a generalized case of somebody who forced a Jew to sell him or to give him his property, right? Uh, stole property from 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 a Jew, and then uh, somebody else wanted to go and buy the property. And so, if somebody bought the property from a sikrikon, and then went back and bought it from the balabai, from the owner of the, from the original owner of the property, then his sale is invalid, right? And the Meiri seems to be saying that the reason the sale of sikrikon is not a sale. Is because there was no exchange of money, therefore it was not a mecher, it was not a sale, it was a matana, which does not work with onus. So there are two things that are going on, on here. Right? The Sikrikon comes, forces Allison to give him her property, but doesn't pay for it, right? The, the essence of stealing her property. So therefore, it's not in the category of a sale. So therefore, it's not There is no sale there, so therefore it never belonged to the Sikrikon. Now, the question here is why? Why doesn't it, when the Baal, when somebody then goes and buys the, the, the land from the Sikrikon and then goes back and acquires it from Allison, it is invalid according to Rav Hamnuna. But why? Not according to from Rav Huna, but Rav Hamnuna is asked this question according to the Mishnah. Why is this invalid? There too, we should say that by way of the coercion, um, it was an actual sale, right? That he actually let it be acquired. 
So here we had a, a long conversation uh, this week. Not a long conversation, a conversation with my uh, esteemed Chavruta about the fact that English does not have a, a, a parallel term to makna. There's no hifil in English, to cause. So you have to use the phrase to cause to acquire, which is too long. So there you go. That was the whole conversation. And uh, the interesting thing is that German does also does not have, you'd figure the German would have a very long word for that, but it doesn't. Also two words. Ha itmar Allah. And we say about this, or the Gemara says about this, about this line in the mission, if you took, if you bought it from the Sikrikon, this, and then you went back and bought it again from the original owner, it is invalid. Right now, the thinking there seems to be that if you first got it from the Sikrikon and then you went and got it from the original owner, the original owner would still be scared of the Sikrikon. So therefore, the sale from the from the second guy is not considered a sale, right? And that's why we ask the question. Let's say it's by way of coercion. He did actually sell it. Amarab lo kana. And this he says. So Rob says. This is only talking about a case where he says, go and, you know, assume ownership of it, chazek, by way of fixing the fence or walking the property, the other ways that one can assume ownership. But if he actually wrote out a deed, then he actually did did acquire. Ulish Shmuel. So the question is, who acquired there? Wonderful pronoun. So shtar, aval b'shtar kana. So it's this, probably the secret code. And then the same guy. But Shmuel says, even if he wrote out a deed, he didn't acquire it. Why? What can you say? Shmuel admits in a case where he gave money to him. So if money passed hands, then actually it wasn't Mechobotel, it was actually a good Mecca. And that seems to support the notion of Tell you about his ovens, that if you force somebody to sell, it's a good sale. But what about, according to Rabbevai, who says about stolen land, that he finishes off from Nachman's statement that we saw last week on the, on the, on the Amud before, that the thief does not, he ends up without the, the, the karka, but he gets the money. He stays with the money, right? Michael, what could you say? So Rav Bevai is just a, a Memra. It's just another Amoraic statement. And Rav Huna is also an Amoraic statement. And so therefore, Rav Huna is not threatened by a another Amoraic statement. Okay. And we go on Amorava. Okay, so now we're getting, now we're back to Rubba, our favorite, our champion. Hilchita, tell you of his ovens, vine, vine. Rubba decides the halacha is that if you hang somebody up and force them to sell you something, the sale is a sale. So immediately, either Rubba or the Stam narrows uh, the statement. This is not when you say just sell me this field, but rather when you say sell me this field. And it's also not the fact that the sale is a good sale. If you say this field, 
if you didn't, if money did not pass hands, unless you didn't count out the money. If you counted out the money, it's not good. And it's it's also not a sale unless he could not get out. But if he could have gotten out, gotten out of it, then it's not a good sale. And the halacha at the end in all of these is actually that even if you said stam sadeh or you just said you didn't pass the money and all of them actually the halakha is that the that the sale is a sale even if you said sadeh zu still zvine zvine the ha'isha ki sadeh zu damia and what's the proof of that because a woman and this gets sounds really bad because you know it is really bad because a woman is like this field and Amemer says, if you force him to marry, or if you force her to marry, it's not clear. So you have a Kaddish, and then the Kiddushin are considered, the betrothal is considered a good betrothal. Now here's the reason why it's not clear who you're talking about. Mar Ashi says about this, It's definitely not a betrothal with a woman. Why? Because he did something that was wrong, Shiloka Hogan, right? It was it was unfair, it was uh, irregular, it was immoral. So therefore, they, meaning the sages, did something with him that was also out of the ordinary, and they decided that the, the marriage was not a marriage. The betrothal was not a betrothal. And the rabbis uprooted his betrothal from her. Amrlei Ravina Ravashi, Ravina said to Ravashi, Tainafta Kaddish Bekaspa. So that works maybe if he betrothed her with money. Kaddish Bebiya Maikalamera. But what happens if he betrothed her by sex, which is one of the three ways to betroth? And if he betrothed her by sex, what are you, how are you going to, how, how is, how are you going to like undo that? Amrlei Shabu Ravana Lavilato Bilad Znut. So the rabbis, just define define then his that act of sex as just fornication is just you know sex and not as a uh, sex that leads to marriage. So now, why did I say that it could be him or could be her? So because Mabravashi says he did something wrong. So the he who did something wrong must be the husband, meaning that the husband did something wrong by forcing the woman to say that she would accept the Kiddushin. Right? Otherwise, it doesn't make sense that who was Shiloh Hogan, they did to him Shiloh Hogan. However, it's interesting that that some, some of the Rishonim, especially the Rambam, actually understands it, that it was he was forced. Right? And the Rambam says in in Hilchot Ishut, A woman is only betrothed by her will. You know, with free by free will, voluntarily. And if a man betroths a woman against her will, the marriage, the betrothal is not considered a betrothal. But if a woman, if a, but if a man was forced to betroth a woman against his will, she is still betrothed. And so this implies the Rambam was interpreting this to mean that the husband was forced. 
Okay, and the Ravid and as Avram and David, who writes the um, Posqueris, who writes the glosses to the Rambam, in which he picks at the Rambam, said that the husband must have said Rotsani that he wanted to, as in all these other cases. That the Rambam doesn't does not say that, even though the Rambam the Rambam himself says that in other places. So it's not clear who's being forced to do what here. Right? It seems to be the, I mean, it's understandable why the Rabban went this way, because we have a very explicit law that a woman cannot be betrothed against her will. On the other hand, if we read it that way, that it's the man who's being forced, right? It's not the husband who didn't do Shiloka Hogan, it's the people who forced him to do Shiloka Hogan. Or you'd have to, like, push it and go around your around the back and say, he the manner of Kiddushin was inappropriate because he was forced. Stranger things have been said. All right. Another case. Tavi, Talalapapi, Akinra, Vizavin. So Tavi, so here this also is ambiguous. It could be, there are two ways to interpret it. So Tavi either held up or, or tied, uh, tied up, hung up, Papi, on this type of kinra tree and uh, forced him to sell something to him or Tavi held up, tied up Papi about a kinra bush and forced him to sell it. So Rabbi Barbachana, now this introduces a whole other thing which we haven't spoken about. We spoke about it maybe a couple of months ago. Moda. So Chatam Rabbi Barbachana Amoda'ava Ashkata. Rabbi Barbachana signed about the moda'a and the sale. So the moda'a is a moda'a is, is a piece of paper that says, I do not want to sell this to X. And if you write that piece of paper before the sale goes through, then it undermines the sale. So here, Rabbi Rahana signed both that moda'a, that statement that said, I do not want the sale to go through, and he also approved of the sale. Amar of Huna, Manda Khatama Moda, Shaper Khatam, Manda Khatam Ashkata, Shaper Khatam. And then Rav Huna says the person who signed the Moda, undermining the sale, signed appropriately. And the person who signed off on the sale signed appropriately. Manifshach. So then the staff says, Manifshach, what are you talking about? Imoda, Lava Ashkata, be Ashkata, Lava Moda. If you sign on the statement that says that I don't want the sale to go through, so then you can't sign on the sale. And if you signed off on the sale, then you can't sign off on the statement that's saying you don't want the sale to go through. Hachikamar. So rather, this is what Rav Huna says. E lav moda'a If not for the fact that there was a moda'a, then the sale would have been good, even though it was a forced sale. Rav Huna And this goes according to Rav Huna, because the Amar Rav Huna tell you zvini zvini. Because Rav Huna says, if you hung a person up and forced him to sell, so their sale is a sale. And thus we come to the end of our daf, leaving the larger questions still unanswered, but the larger questions will come with us. But in the details we see already taking shape this notion of navigating between wanting sale to have full intention or will, and also understanding that that's not totally the case, or that's not the case in every case, and then trying to figure out what that wiggle room is in between. It's been a pleasure having you with me for this daf. 
My name is Arye Cohen. You can follow me on Twitter at Irmiklat, I-R-M-I-K-L-A-T. I want, as always, to thank my producer, Ellie Unger-Sargon. Check out his podcast, Four Cubits. Um, the series on the emotions is coming to an end. Check it out. Start at the beginning, work your way through it. My wonderful, amazing Chavruta, Charlotte van Robert, and the communications team of Dafshui, Shachar Cohen Hodis, who created the amazing logo. Please introduce yourself, tell me who you are, send comments, criticisms, or witticisms to widow and the brothers ram at gmail.com. That um, email will be also on the podcast page, as will links to the where you can find this page of the Gemara in various different places. Have a good time to say thanks this week for all that you have been given. And remember, at what cost? And remember, those who are no longer with us, be well. And hopefully we'll see you next week in the Beit Midrash in the closet.